Hugh Gilmore has guested on the Shift Control podcast once before. The reason he's coming back on again, there are two reasons. Maybe there are three reasons. The first reason is he's really sound. He's uh, a really good fella who makes what he does seem incredibly interesting. And he's an effortless communicator. Number two, he is coaching at a really, really high level in performance improvement. He's a proper high performance coach in athletics and British uh, weightlifting. And to have somebody with that weight and gravitas on the podcast is, um, it's an honor to be honest, but it's hugely relevant to what I talk about in terms of performance improvement at a sales level. And one of the cornerstones to performance improvement is culture and cultural transformation. So in this podcast, we talk a little bit about that. There were three bursts of recording, so there's a little bit of editing that has been done to weave the three pieces together. But we're talking about culture, we're talking about informal and formal culture, cultural artifacts, uh, the some of the differences um, in sport and business where culture is concerned, the challenges that he's had to deal with. And I hope you find it fairly um, relevant to your work, but if it's not relevant to your work, that you find it interesting just from a human humanitarian perspective or a human perspective, rather. Hugh's the head of performance psychology, mental health and coach development. I'm just looking at his LinkedIn profile. He's bound to think I've been stalking him here. He um, passionate about training people in motivational interv interviewing. We talk about that again in this podcast, which we talked about in the previous one. He co-hosts his own podcast called 80% Mental, um, which has been given the stamp of approval by the British Association of Sport and Exercise Science. And he was a coach at Ballycran Hurling. He's a hurler. He's living in England for quite a while now. But it's taken me ages to get this edited. I'm not going to talk anymore. It's the usual segue without any further ado, but I've, I've been um, really keen to get this out there. Uh, I hope you really enjoy it um, and tolerate the punctuation, the editing punctuation as we go through it. So here we go. Hugh, great to get, great to get talking to you again here. Um, I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but we'll talk about something, right? <laughs> well, as long as there's noise coming out, something must be happening. Oh, no, but yeah, well, that's probably, I think that's fairly logical um, view, and I'm going to share that view. Let me get full screen on the go here. Okay, so um, can we use the last podcast as a starting point? Yeah, certainly. We covered a few things. Um, culture was one of them. And it's like culture is like one of them. Culture in a whole lot of context was one of those things. Motivational interviewing was another thing that we talked about that I find really, really useful. Um, but just, can we go back to culture again? Mm -hmm. um, I'm finding more and more the work that I'm doing with salespeople is starts off with trying to coach and train salespeople and sales managers into a way of doing something when it's really the behavior and attitude that needs to be coached and that's bedded into um into the culture that prevails in the organization is is that a similar thing to the work that you do do you find that 
that everything that happens on the surface is anchored into a culture underneath the surface? I don't I don't think it's possible for somebody to act not in line with some sort of cultural interpretation. And although some of your listeners might work for an organization and some of their co colleagues might also listen to this podcast, both you and your colleagues will have different interpretations of what the culture is within your organization. Because the culture is the stories, the the mythology, the legends, the experiences, um, uh, the secrets also of the organization that are being passed down. You know, what's said in the corridors versus what the company policy actually is. So there's informal culture and there's formalized culture. And it's not possible really to separate out your actions from those because to an extent you're influenced by them. Um, within, within that itself, how the person views themselves in relation to that culture and how their goals align to it. So, for example, a person coming from a background, if we've got a Northern Irish listener, uh, a person coming from a background who identifies with a certain culture might look at elements of their culture, such as music, song, dance and sport, and actually only strongly identify and language and might only strongly identify with one element of that culture and be strongly engaged in it, but not really care too much about other elements. So I think if we translate that into business. Um, what elements does the individual care about and how do they influence that individual within sport? So I work uh, as a sports psychologist with uh, British Athletics and I just finished up there with them and I'm now moving into coach development with British weightlifting and I also work as a sports psychologist with British weightlifting as well. Um, and within the organizations of elite sport, the way culture is impacted is depends on the size of the organization as well. So like, again, the small village or small street that you're from and how people will behave from that area will have its own culture as well. And, and again, you'll get that within organizations like departmental. So I suppose like that, that merely paints, paints the framework of where culture is for everything. Um, but I'd say pretty much that you can't take an action without actually considering the culture um, and without considering how the cultures influence that action. But also at times people will go against the culture and that's also not a bad thing. And it's especially not a bad thing if you've got a bad culture because to put a context to this, the difference between culture and tradition is that tradition is what people have always done and is stagnant. Culture is what's evolving. Now, I, I don't know if anybody listens to young folk these days, God, I'm starting to sound old, <laughs> but um, like just even the language that, that some young folk, because I'm working in England, they use words like paying. And I think, I, I think it means good um, and, and other, other like lingo. And it's like, that's, that's evolution. And like, I still say the word cool, cool. Yeah, it's cool. But I'm sure like years and years ago, that was a weird thing for people to repeatedly say. Um, and now it's uncool to say cool. But the point I'm making is that you should always criticize your culture. Um, you should always hold it up to the fire um, because it will burn away of what's not necessary. Um, 
and criticize your tradition and, and that'll help it grow but also recognize that actually part of what it does is it tells a story that we can hold on to and align ourselves to and actually act in a direction towards so it's important not to burn it away entirely so at times it might be important to grow it so that would be my thoughts and culture like this that's mental uh, i've got so much i want to fire back at you there um the idea that of the the formal and informal culture is something that a lot of people that i work with don't really consider you know that the, the I'm, I'm maybe not getting this right there's probably a scientific or a psychological term for it but you know they I, I would always consider that people have a public, a private, and a secret, you know, public mm -hmm. persona, the private persona, and then the stuff that nobody knows. It's like the, the Jahari window stuff mm -hmm. um, where you've got your the blind spot. Um, the first blind spot that I notice with businesses is that they don't think, they think the culture is okay. And then whenever mm. you're talking about changing the culture, it's like, well, and again, I've, we've, we've mentioned this before for definite, it's like, well, we've done culture, now can we move on to getting some new carpets? And the idea that there will be two types of culture would be complete a real a head reconciliation for them. Can you talk a bit more about the informal culture and the formal culture? Or is it really obvious? Are the two really obvious? No, I mean, and, and we shouldn't be afraid of speaking about the obvious, even if it is obvious, because to some people it's not. Um, when we think about informal culture, right? Informal culture is, and, and this, and this may be actually controversial in today's society, but like holding the door open uh, for somebody. Is that a good action or a bad action? Um, I don't know. I've, I've heard people say that holding a door open for someone else, uh, if they're a female and you're male, is actually bad um, because th that shouldn't happen. But again, like I would hold the door open for some people when they're close enough and that's just it, whether you're male or female. But the point is that it used to be culturally that men would hold the door open and it was informal. It wasn't really written down. Maybe in some book of manners it was written down. Um, and now it's sort of changed. It's changed that maybe people just hold the door open for each other. Maybe it's it's good manners. Um, I don't know. But the point I'm making is that there's things that are not written down that are part of culture. And if you look into some of the research and culture, it talks about cultural artifacts, which are formalized things whereby people behave in a certain way um so a cultural artifact might be your your values up in the wall it might be how you format the emails and send them out and what they contain it might be how you address sales target how you promote people or how you celebrate their success yeah. so those might be sort of your cultural artifact facts about how you go about a certain thing but informally there might be other things going on such as, you know, how do people conduct themselves towards each other and their teammates? What what banter is it that goes on between people who are competing? But ultimately, if there's healthy competition within your sales team, for example, that's great. But as long as they're working together and actually it's not a healthy competition whereby I'm trying to cause everyone else to feel so I look good. Um, yeah. Because ultimately you want them, them all doing really well. Um, but the point I'm making here is that the things that are not written down, uh, and and you know this because you can ask people like, give me a give me an example of something that you do, that isn't written down in terms of your behaviour, that is common to that environment. Right, it might be 
uh, taking an extra five minutes on your lunch break and nobody caring. And people, some people might listen to that and say, that's terrible. Some people might listen to this and say, that's brilliant because it shows that actually we're not here to count minutes. We're here to count production, which is number of units produced. If you take a five minutes more and us having a relaxed culture results in you feeling less stressed and therefore enjoying your work more and you, you sell more, well, happy days. But then I, I've worked in sales environments before uh, where it's like every minute's counted and it's like, well, that that just gets on top of me and feels restrictive. Um, are you judging my performance or are you judging like the non-essential? I mean, K KPIs, what's the opposite of a KPI? Uh, a non-key performance indicator? Like yeah. how many organizations measure non-key performance indicators? Um, yeah. Or, you know, cu culture depreciating performance indicators, maybe they should be called some of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what I mean by informal and formal. Um, one is we know where it is. We can locate it. We can see it. It's there on a board. It's it's written. It's part of it. A way things are done and it will be continued. Whereas informal is like an evolving thing that happens within a specific area. Um, one of the things um, that you'd mentioned before was evolution. OK. And for a lot of people that I work with, a cultural transformation is revolution. It's like, we got to do this because everybody else is doing it. I think it's going to buck up productivity. Um, uh, we'll be able to attract more people. You know, that's this, this immediate reaction to um, all of these ongoing ills and issues that they had ignored dealing with in the good times. And so they're now coming up and going, we can, we can culturally tran transform this. O on top of it, it's the idea that it's just a sales thing. So it's organizational. And you mentioned size and scale as well, which is interesting to come back to that, um, you know, the, the platform for me for, for a cultural change would have to be um, truth. It would have to be like everybody really wants this to happen for the right reasons. It has to be a level of integrity and honesty and sincerity in driving this forward. And some people that I'm speaking to you, there's not really the idea of informal or formal. There's no there's no boundary, and it's not evolution. It's it's just they need let let's just make it happen. Now I'm probably speaking to a certain type of business, and that's not to say that they're the right or wrong businesses. Maybe with the more mature organizations that are family oriented, family owned and engineering and um, construction and so on and so forth, that there's maybe a reticence to change the things that got them to this point that they've always relied on. Like it's almost like a leap of faith. And I don't think it's so for discussion really that cultural transformation is necessary, but I think it's the way it's approached the way it's maybe sold, the way it's presented, and then some of the things you've talked about and such like a rapid fire there. Um, it's a, it can be, I guess, what am I trying to say? It can be a big leap of faith for some people in business, but presumably in high-performance sports, there's no choice. I don't, I don't think, I think what's interesting is that if you're an Olympic sport, a certain amount of money goes to your sport because it's an Olympic sport to fund your athletes because there are medalists. That's the funding system in the UK. 
it's actually a little bit um I don't want to I'm, I'm not using this term because it's politically charged but it's a little bit communist in that uh because you you know as an athlete you get x amount of pounds of money um and the organization gets x amount of pounds of money to uh, facilitate your performance within within business and I, I look at this from a point of view because i'm actually from a small family business um and i also work self-employed as well for some of my contracts and, and recognize that i'm actually an entrepreneur who, who trains people up in motivational interviewing and things like that and I have to approach it that way but like as my business grows it goes through a number of challenges and if your business is making money and if it's profitable it'll grow and growth actually prevents presents challenges most of our listeners or your listeners will be uh older than 18 and therefore obviously know about growing through puberty um and and some still actually are still growing because if you're under 25 your brain doesn't actually fully develop until you're 25 and that presents challenges because you have to learn how to operate as your systems in your body grow and adapt through that time period and that results in lots of weird things happening like uh how you orientate yourself initially as your kid towards your family and then uh as you grow older you initiate towards your peer group and as you become an adult you then initiate uh, and orientate yourself towards yourself and you're like actually it doesn't matter if i am not approved by my peer group i'll act in a way that that suits me because i i'm responsible i don't need to please other people so the greener growth curve i'm not too sure if i mentioned this in the last podcast it actually highlights how businesses feel as they grow. Have you, you heard of this before? On ahead. So basically the, the greenier growth curve, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I, I take that and I adapt it to sport all the time because it's such a wonderful idea or model. And the idea being that as a business is young, the first crisis it will face is a crisis of leadership. Um, it'll, it'll start with all this creativity, but then where does that creativity actually go? It needs a leader to actually make it profitable and turn it into something. And then the next bit is um, the direction. Where does this direction, the direction go within? It has this great direction from the leadership, but actually you end up with this crisis of autonomy of like, how do you give autonomy to the staff members, the people, the people who've been in the business quite a while and are feeling devalued because now it's become something else that it wasn't like that when they were there young. And then you, you start with delegation and then that ends up with a crisis of control because actually as you delegate, it's wonderful when you trust people, but as you hire more and more people, there's less and less trust. So you become more bureaucratic and more HR led and HR essentially, and I know harm to anybody who's a HR person listening to this, but HR need policies and clarity and that actually stiffens up and makes rigid the structure. And then because of that, what becomes rigid uh, is often becomes brittle and can break. So what we can find then is a bureaucratic process is limit, uh, limit the growth of companies because things become very rigid. There's a guy called Dave Snowden who talks about how they removed um, the expenses for uh, people. Uh, and there used to be a process within, I think it was IBM, whereby they would require developers and engineers to come in and just work for three, four, three, four days straight to fix an important uh, problem. And this is above and beyond, um, you know, normal working thing. Yet 
he's not had his expenses account taken away from him. So what they used to do was they used to get taxi drivers to overcharge them, put that down as expenses, take the money off the taxi drivers, keep that in the funds so they could then use that for pizza and Coca-Cola to keep the developers working. So informally found a workaround for a system. When he left the organization, he was then told that, uh, are you the guy that came up with that idea of overcharging the taxis so that we could keep a petty cash? And like that system was informally embedded within the organization. So like that's a perfect example of how at at the coal face, uh, organizations or people start to solve the problem that they're faced with through in ingenuity or essentially dissent. They they leave and, and walk away. So you've got this bureaucracy then sort of creating a crisis of control potentially. Um, and then there's obviously more coordination and you've got red tape and then there's actually you need more collaboration to fix that and then you've got this sort of how do you create the alliance between like all the different systems and parts of the organization so it's messy but like you start out with three people and you end up with 300 it's not the same organization um, no, I, I listened to um david mcwilliams was interviewing your fella one of the brothers that owns stripe mm-hmm Oh, is John and Patrick are the two brothers, maybe, and they have eight thousand staff. And talking about, you know, we listen, he's talking about and working in Silicon Valley and about how it's very easy to retrofit that this was the journey we were going on, because it all falls into place. And then you write your book when you retire and you say that was very strategic and so on and so forth. And the, this thing about, I'm not saying it's be careful what you wish for, but you really need to be careful that. Um, Culture is, uh, it's not like a panacea, you know, it's no. its not going to cure everything because the chances are you don't really know what everything, everything there is that needs to be cured. So here's an interesting thing as well. If you look at, you know, what does your business do now? And then if your business survived a hundred years, what would it do then? And if it survived a thousand years, what would it do with them? How does industry change and how do you create adaptability in, in the industry? You know, Eleco is a manufacturer of barbells, the most expensive barbells in the world. They originally started out making, uh, well, it's a sw Swedish company um, that uh, originally started making uh, waffle irons. So electric, Eleco is uh, partly, the part of the word for Swedish is electric. Okay. So like the barbells are actually made by a company that started making waffle irons. So like how does your company see opportunities for growth and go and move in that direction. And it doesn't do that unless there's change and new blood and new ideas and failure. Um, and I think people look at culture as uh, we won't fail. This culture will make us bulletproof. And I I mean, that this is, this is maybe where actually critical thinking and performance needs to come in. Yeah. I actually have uh, an hour long talk on YouTube that's free at the moment uh, on critical thinking. It's bro broken down into three different videos. But the issue is within business decisions is we generally take actions between you know this is a good thing to do and we don't think like that when it comes to money but when we use fluffy words like culture and confidence and performance we go yeah we need more performance we need more culture but actually what's the cost what's the cost of that culture because that culture isn't free that culture development isn't free uh, financially what's the cost yeah. Uh, people wise what's the cost you know what are you willing to bear to make that change 
so it's like the the typical typical model of you can have quality speed and cost yeah you can you pick, pick two yeah. yeah pick two yeah. like that's 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 a very simple way of looking at it yeah. uh, but it works to explain this because you know really it's probably there's 15 different components and it's not a triangle it's some multi-dimensional shape and you don't know what half the components are and you don't know what you're picking affects what other components because that's how complex psychology is but culture is a real fluffy word isn't it mm. yeah so actually here's a here's a good thing for to defluff culture for you um <laughs> I, I i i might have mentioned this in the last podcast so stop me if i did but oap did i mention that to you go on ahead observable achievable promotable right okay. so very simply i sit down and pe with people and i i work through a series of uh terms so series of words that are actually psychological constructs um that are shown to enhance performance there's, depending on what literature there's anywhere between five and ten of them um but the idea is that where where do you see that in that specific sport because all sports are, are different i work in individual sports and team sports and, and confidence means different in different settings and it means different different things to the coach so if i say to the word confidence to you right or even let's just say I'd say the word good culture and you give me, yeah, good culture is this. So can you give me an example of what good culture is? Like you would, you would tell me in a business setting that you've seen that's, that's good culture. Um, I, I, I'm going to, yeah, there's an example of um, psychological safety. Let's, let's explore this using this OAP, observable, achievable, promotable. Okay. Psychological safety. Um, in an organization what would you observe what would you see with your eyes happening if you saw that there was psychological safety um encouraging failure um it's okay to make a mistake don't worry about that that's good for plenty for trying as a very trite example but i know there are businesses that for example would have jokers that the staff can play um every every month and the joker is shown when they've made a mistake Okay. And if you've uh, crashed your van or you've d built a whatever, and you see if you don't show your joker, they think that you're hiding the mistakes. So it's, it's, l it's less about psychological safety. It's more about actually don't brush it under the carpet and progress yeah. and refining processes and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. So okay. is, that, is that a good enough example? What, no, yeah. So actually what you've done is you've said like there's a process whereby people play a joker card uh, every month uh, on their mistakes and go like, yeah, this is the big mistake this month that we need to do better on uh, that I've I've messed up on or whatever. Okay, so you've actually seen it. Is that an achievable thing? So when I say achievable, what I mean by uh, in this OAP is achievable on a Tuesday at 2 p.m. What does it look like? Right. When I talk about confidence uh, with this Alaska athlete, what does it look like? Uh, you know, when do you need that confidence? It's like, you know, five minutes before the game, I need to, I need to do this thing, think this way, I need to have this game plan, and that's what it is. Or in training, I get confidence from doing these specific things. So they define it. A coach might define it as confident players um, don't lie down when they get hit, right? They get up straight away, right? They're not put off. Now, that's interesting because that's the coach's perspective and not the player's perspective. And then on top of that, 
the coaches define that as they don't lie down. Well, you can only know that 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 has been hit, that sort of deficitly deficit definition, which is don't be late, for example. Well, you only achieve don't be lateness because you've described the don't be late. You've described the thing you don't want. It has to be framed in an achievable way of 2 p.m. What I see, what's the good thing I see? Not tell me what you don't want. There's lots of things you don't want, you know. Um, it's actually described the positive behavior you want to see. I want to see people who, uh, in your case, psychological safety, saying, I made this mistake. I hope that's all right. Uh, and I've, I've come up with this idea as how to rectify it. Um, has anybody else overcome this mistake or faced this this challenge? Um, that, to me, if, if people are using that those words in that framework on a monthly meeting, you're starting to win and you're starting to show then this observable and achievable way of, of framing psychological safety. Now, what's promotable? The P the P in this OAP anagram. So the anagram, anagram or acronym, I always get those two acronym, words mixed up. Acronym, but acronym. Acronym. So the P, so I'm not just pulling out these term, two, three terms because they fit in with OAP. Um, and we all recognize OAP from old age pensioner or the, the now defunct term. But actually, that's me taking the scientific literature I'm putting it into a framework that allows you to remember it. You know, I'm not just pulling this out of, it sounds nice. This is me fitting it into a model or fitting it into a way of you remembering it. So originally achievable was called non-deficit based. Promotable, promotable is important because if your confidence comes from, you know, maybe some religious prayer that you say, maybe some personal medication that you need to take or some personal warm up that you do, well, that's personal to you and I don't need to discuss that with the rest of the team. And also it, it doesn't benefit me to discuss that and highlight it with the rest of the team. But if your confidence comes from reviewing match footage and being prepared, and I go, look, she's reviewed the match footage, well done. I've said that in front of the team and that's promotable. I'm now promoting a behavior to the rest of the team that someone else has achieved yeah. that everybody can observe. In a psychological safety point of view, you can promote those and go like, great, well done for, for highlighting that. That's a new problem that we, we've come across. Do you know what? That Well done for highlighting that. That's a problem everybody has to go through. So-and-so is a top salesperson. They've done that seven times. And it took them eight times before they worked out how to stop that. That's a promotable behavior. So can you turn your definitions of what it is you think you want into things that are observable, you see them, achievable it's framed in a non-deficit based way and happens at a specific time and place and then promotable we can talk about it openly as a team that that people are achieving this fluffy term of confidence psychological safety good culture or whatever it is and what if it's personal though it's it's okay to have stuff as personal too isn't it oh yeah yeah massively like and again with individual athletes like i don't care that the stuff's personal but if i'm building a team I want to try and get to the point where we talk about promotable stuff that's actually team based, yeah. because you know if what's what's going to be easier it's it's that going back to that scale issue. If I have twenty five athletes, I I can't waste my time making every single one of them have this personal understanding of what their confidence is. I need to go to what is like a group source of confidence, yeah. and what can I promote amongst the team. I think the biggest thing is if I, if I'm working with a team is that. You've got 15 opinions of what confidence is or 15 opinions of what psychological safety is 
or 15 and plus the managers plus the backroom staff plus the committee you know yeah. and it's no different in business so my view here is like we need to look at how first of all you get out that knowledge and then two how you shape that knowledge into something that's usable so you need to take out people's opinions you need to put them into something they agree with and they can all get behind and then work from that framework and that takes a period of time um now there's a degree of difference in that when you do it in sport they're there because they want to be there in business they're there because because you pay them and you're going to have people who are motivated because of the money that you pay them and the fact that their job is on the doorstep and that you know it has certain other benefits that fit in with their other goals in life that's perfectly fine because what we find in elite sport is some athletes are just motivated by the money and the opportunity some are motivated by the status and some they all perform it doesn't mean that because they don't really love it like who who really loves selling cat repellent you know cat repellent pellets who can really say that they get out of bed to sell cat repellent pellets right that, and that, like i'm just saying that because i actually want if anybody knows anybody who sells really good cat <laughs> repellent pellets please get in touch because i have an issue with cats at the moment um i'm a flower beds so but the point being that how people connect to your business that you want or your product or your department might be different from what your ideal or utopian view is on it and you need to find a way of connecting that in that doesn't actually say here your shit because you can't really get behind the value of these cat repellent pellets can you actually get behind them and go like you enjoy working here because we're good crack and actually because uh, we've got good benefits and we pay you well and we respect you and it's a nice environment and here's how we want to keep this going so that we can continue this for you yeah. um you know I, um, the, the selling is almost a consequence rather than the main focus or so not yeah you know selling, yeah. selling is uh, or selling done well is a consequence of the environment it's a byproduct of the environment that you've created um and you could be, be selling anything so i mean and that and that's the thing is like if we're identifying we, we talked about kpis and like and then culture culture depreciating kpis um before like but like when you're creating this like base base everything in reality um like if you're not basing things in reality you're essentially demotivating people um like if you go and tell somebody that you're the world's best salesperson you could be the world's best salesperson that's actually that's not beneficial it's not you believing in them and that's all that's doing is placing your judgment and expectation on them and they're then going they expect that of me you know i find it hard getting out of bed and i don't particularly like this organization and they haven't replied to my email about my holiday that i asked Do you know it's like actually go and ask the people you work for what can i do better to help you yeah. do your job and if you do that yeah everything will start working what can i do better to help you do your job when you say that to your customers, look, we have these products. This is what our products do. What do you need from our product that our product doesn't provide at, at this cost point? You know, um, well, this is this is really uh, very. It's not timely or fortuitous. I guess is the reason that that we're speaking, Hugh. Is that um, when I interviewed Noel last week, and and 
this is the sound of smoke not been blown, but he is, he's a proper high-performing salesman and sales manager. His figures and stats, the CV gives all the credibility. There's visibility and credibility. It's all fact, you know. And he talked about that line, you know, with building the culture with the staff is that, you know, it's not enough to say, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. It's like they want 360, um, you know, performance reviews. And he's happy to say, what, what can I do better for you? And what can I do better for me? And that's an incredibly... Um, position of vulnerability do you know you're putting yourself in and, and that that's like if you're putting that out there sincerely like you you know it's not always going to be good that's coming back but it's character forming and it's help it's proper help you know um do you know the so the i'm, I'm training a number of therapies that i use within the performance setting um one of them is rational emotive behavior therapy which actually evolved out of uh stoicism so elements of stoicism and other philosophy. Give me that acronym again there. Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy, R-E-B-T. Okay. And the other one is Motivational Interviewing, which I train people in. Um, but the Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy emerged out of stoicism um, and other philosophies as well were incorporated into that. And one of the interesting things about it is that whenever it, within stoicism, if somebody insults you, if somebody says something bad about you, the first thing you have to do is consider, is that true? Right? So if you go and you're trying to sell and somebody says, I said, you know what? Your product is not up to scratch. Is it true? And if it is true, then your product is not up to scratch and that's good feedback. There's no need to be insulted about it. No. You know? um that's just good quality feedback but too often people and we see this online with political opinions and views and whatever else people are too keen to disregard a person um uh, because of their viewpoint um and 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 sort of like say ah they're they're rubbish don't don't work with them but actually they're not rubbish they're critic critiquing you your enemy is the first person who will critique you your friend will not critique you so when we look at it this way, like you want to put yourself in the harshest environment and have the edges knocked off, because when you do that, that's great. The greatest quality of feedback is somebody who doesn't like you, who will tell you the truth straight away that you, where can you buy that? You can't buy that, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a good way to take criticism is like, right, is this true? First of all, because if it is, then I, I need to find a way of doing better. And if it's not true, then it doesn't matter. What matters more so is that actually how do I build a relationship with this person so that they actually see that that the more correct version of the truth. So within rational motive behavior therapy, I ask three three questions to challenge people's belief, which is essentially summarize what is reality. And the three questions are: is is this logical? Is there evidence to support this? And is this helpful? And if I have to say no to one of those questions then something has to change. So if it's not logical, it's not helpful, and there's no evidence, if one of those questions is a no, then we need to start changing what we do. Um, and it's, a, it's just a very good rule of rule of thumb for assessing the situation. If you can slowly step back and, and run whatever challenge you're faced through those three questions. But I, I think I'm digressing here, no, sorry. So all this is really good. So so this is, um, give me an example then in, um, in a sporting context where you would use that. Okay. Um, so classic example, um, an athlete training all their life to qualify for the games. And, uh, when I say the games, I mean the Olympics of Paralympics and they come in and they're stressed out. They're 
they're a bit uh, anxious about their situation they're feeling nervous they're under pressure they can't sleep right and they say i have to qualify i i better qualify otherwise this has all been for nothing um right very common right overly invested and you're going to get this in people who've like overly invested in whatever seal or whatever effort and endeavor they over invest in it and they, they they are so determined that this thing has to pay off for them they demand that they should and i'll find out that their belief is that they should achieve this performance this qualification performance and i'll say well first of all is there any evidence to suggest that you'll achieve this qualification performance or that you should do it well no because you can't tell the future right now, yes, your performance is the past and all the work you've done contribute to it. And there's strong evidence to suggest you might, but there's no guarantee. I don't know anything there is that is guaranteed, right? Next thing, is it logical that you think that you should qualify qualify for the games? Well, actually, it is kind of logical. You've worked eight years, you've hit previous uh, personal best, you're in line with that, you're pointing in that direction and, and all the KPIs stack up. That's fine. Right. Is it helpful for you to think that you should? No, because actually what it's doing is it's causing me to stay up at night. It's causing me to lose sleep and that's not helping my performance and my ability to recover because you're over-investing it. Right, so if it's not helpful, helpful and there's no evidence, I need to change that belief of I should perform uh, and get this qualification to um, I'd prefer to perform and qualify. But... I do not need to know that I have to qualify. Uh, I don't need to know the outcome and I do not need to have a guaranteed to be able to sleep and be able to train and be able to recover as I need to do. So one is actually demanding the certainty. The other one is uh, not demanding the certainty and actually saying to yourself, actually, you're not, you don't need to know that you will qualify. And that actually, if you do qualify, um, how does it change you? Because like going to the Olympics is like going to the cinema, right? If you pay a big enough price, you can get a seat, right? Doesn't mean you're not an asshole because assholes go to the cinema. It doesn't change your self-worth as a human being, right? There's people, just because you've gone to the games or just because you've hit your sales target doesn't make you a better person than anybody else. Yourself, your self-worth doesn't raise or lower because you achieve more or achieve less. Because then what, what we're saying by doing that is we're saying that when you walk past somebody in the street who's maybe homeless, who's maybe... Uh, alcoholic or drug addiction who's maybe made some mistakes in their life and who, who also has maybe not had the same chances in life are we saying that they're a bad and worthless person because they haven't achieved their sales target and they're they're sat there in the street homeless no we would never say that so why is it that you know because you've achieved your sales target or somebody's achieved a ticket to the olympics that makes them a good person it doesn't it's just the thing we do we separate actions from identity um but I'm I'm jumping about there in no, terms no, of like because I, I want to stay together. with some of the stuff you're talking about there. So, um, it, it's really the the it's been overly focused on an outcome rather than focusing on the process. Exactly. Okay. So like the and and sales, the analogy is very clear for me. And I had a conversation with a client today where we were talking about a target for twelve months activity based on X, Y, and Z, and that that figures a hundred pounds. Um, but that figure's never going to change unless the process is right. That, that we're, we've got the granular detail of the process that we're measuring the small bits and pieces rather than keeping an eye, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we, so it's just the equivalent of the child in the back saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, 
And mm-hmm. the, the other thing you'd mentioned, which is something we had, we kind of touched on before we broke live, was the word should. Mm. The word should is like the enemy of progress, isn't it? Well, that's 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 interesting you bring that up. So when I use the word should and I critique the word should, I'm talking about things that are being expressed. This is very technical language as conditional demands. And what I be, mean by that is a demand is I judge something to be of a certain level and I demand it to be higher. And that would equate to a person's belief. Yeah. Right. So um to make this understandable some people will say brexit should not have happened or brexit should have happened either one of those is a demand um or for the ones that are saying brexit should have happened it would be brexit should have people should not complain about brexit right those are both demands and they're both unrealistic they don't fit into the real world because one that did happen and two other people will be unhappy yeah. it's not there's no evidence to suggest that people should be unhappy there's no, it's not logical to think that uh, the world should always work out your way. It's not logical to think that other people shouldn't complain. And it's not helpful for you to hold that view if that view is causing you a degree of disturbance or stress or causing you just to be a boring person who talks about politics all the time. I only do this because it brings good examples because people sit on one side of the fence that I can annoy both sides of the fence with no, this topic. But but when I when I when I put this in a in a business context, you know, uh I, I have to hit the sales target to get that bonus. Yeah, I should hit that sales target to hit that bonus. That's fine, all right? Um, if I'm saying I should hit that sales target to get this bonus and I'm incredibly stressed out or annoyed or pissed off or agitated about this scenario, um, then that's maybe more of a demand. So is the should actually causing the problem? So if the should is based in reality, that's perfectly fine. But if it's based on like, you know, I should get this, otherwise I'm a piece of shit. Which you do get. Like I, I should do this. This shouldn't I shouldn't have wasted my life doing this or putting in all this effort if I'm not gonna hit this target. All right, but that's that's more of a demand. That's more stressful, and that's a stressful perception of the world. Uh, because sometimes you will put in a, a waste of time. There's nothing to say that you shouldn't waste your time. It's not evidence-based, it's not logical, it's not helpful to think that you're the magical human who doesn't make mistakes and doesn't waste six months of company's expenses down some avenue to go, actually, we were wrong. We need to change tact, you know? So does that make sense? It's a very useful model. You know, they, is it logical? Is there evidence and is it helpful? You know, and, and the, the idea that, that, you know, is it helpful would be very binary. You know, mm. that it's like a yes or no. So I'm, not, I'm not really sure. Well, you're pretty sh- sure. You can argue logic all day and you could probably fake the evidence, but ultimately if it's not helpful, yeah, you know, yeah. that's that's why only one of those needs to be there. I mean, essentially, they're questions that bring us down to the core of reality. Um, and to, to pick up on that binary, when I was talking earlier about cost, speed, quality, which people will be familiar with and about how psychology is a bit more like 15 different things and another 15 we can't actually identify. And you're choosing between trade offs between that. People often think dichotomously, there's a dichotomous bias, binary bias, where you go, it's good or it's bad. It's never that simple. Um, it's net good or net bad. Mm, it, it's still never that simple because what's net good result today could be a net bad result tomorrow. You like, And you've mentioned this before in previous podcasts where, that I've listened to you of lifetime customer value. Yeah. What's net good for your books at the end of this month 
is by overselling uh, a product to a customer and then them going, actually, I didn't need that and that person took advantage of me. That's not good for that month. It's not net good for the next millennia, yeah. you know? So again, your, your good, bad dichotomy is temporal. Is it good, bad this month or good, bad over 10 years? So, and that's where we come back into critical thinking, um, you know, of actually holding things to the fire. I'm just going, right, can I destroy this with, is it logical evidence, helpful in what way? What are the consequences? There's no right way to do something, you know? So in um, your, your definition of critical thinking, are you talking about the De Bono six or seven different hats and looking at it from that way? How, how, do, you, how do you define critical thinking? That's a very good question. I'm not sure if I have a very good answer. Um, You'll do rightly so far. <laughs> But like I'm not, I'm not even aware of this De Bono. I've, I've heard of uh, wearing different hats, but my view of critical thinking, I suppose, would be that you understand the limitations of your understanding and your judgment, uh, so that you can effectively make make and take better actions. And then I'm going to go one further than that: um, that you have the ability to understand that your ability to critically think doesn't mean that you're right and doesn't mean that you need to go and go, I'm right, everyone else is wrong and act like some sort of apostle or evangelist and start putting your views on other people because actually that in itself is not helpful and that actually creates psychological reactance, which I believe I talked about in the last podcast, I think, which is if I start telling you what to do, you'll do you'll want to do the opposite so you have to take people from where they're at and take them along with you and that's a skill of good communication which is obviously what motivational interviews all about so not only do you need to be able to critically think you need to then come back to your organization people managers boss family whatever and then go how can we critically think together so that we can explore this view and see does this fit in with how you understand the problem that we're facing or the task that we're trying to achieve so there's two elements to it there. Yeah, the, the I think the the idea that you can beat somebody up by your critical thinking is kind of self-defeating. Yeah. I mean, th again, this goes back to, you know, philosophy. I think it was Plato or Socrates, potentially. And I, I read this, uh, there's a, a great book on the dummy's guide to philosophy, um, which I read and one of the first earliest chapters of it. Um, before I got into some of the heavier stuff was like philosophy is about arguing in the extent that we argue together about an idea so that we refine the idea and the understanding together and we both move to place of better. What you see uh, in politics, what you see in Twitter or sometimes in boardrooms is arguing of points that aren't actually moving the idea but are attacking of the human. Uh, uh, ad hominem is that what it is isn't it ad hominem is when you attack the person yeah. so like the idea being that philosophy is about refining understanding of positions uh to be closer to the truth because we can't we can't we're not as a single human we're not possible of refining a, a truth because we couldn't possibly understand the world fully enough to know the exact best thing yeah. so by having another person there it becomes more likely that we will, will be more truthful and we do that by refining the ideas and approaches. But, you know, you have to actually understand somebody. But that goes back to that question we talked about. What can I do for you and what would help you in this scenario? Will it allow you to understand somebody and bring them along with you? 
Um, 